Hi, I'm Nathan Ryder, and welcome to the Viber Survivors podcast, where I talk to PhD graduates about their research, their Viber, and life after the PhD. This is episode 19, and today I'm talking to Dr. Lauren Roffey, a PhD graduate at the University of East Anglia. Lauren's research area was environmental social science, and her PhD research was in environmental policymaking in the aviation industry. I talked to Lauren about her research and also about what she's been up to since finishing her PhD, setting up a social enterprise. So hi Lauren. Hi. Thanks very much for uh, being on the podcast today. Can you tell me a bit about your research? No problem. So I examined the claim that the aviation industry have historically been able to occupy a privileged position in environmental policy making. So I took two case studies that have been fundamental um, in the growth of the industry since World War II and applied two theories of policy change to examine the modes and mechanisms behind this position of power that they've been occupying. So what sort of things did you do during your research then? Because that my, my background's math. And I understood uh, a little bit of what you just said, but not all of it. Yep. Um, well, the two cases I took were the decision to develop Sandstead Airport as the third London airport in the 1980s and the decision to build a second runway at Manchester Airport. Um, both of these were big infrastructure projects needed to provide the capacity to um, continually develop the aviation industry in the UK. So I undertook documentary analysis and a series of interviews to provide me with the timeline of events and to look at the um, the debates that went on and the beliefs that the people involved in it held. And then I applied two different theories of policy change, one which said that um, policy changes arises from an open competition between different groups adjusting to events, and one that says that the structure of the state consistently privileges some actors over others. So I applied the ideas that both of these theories maintain and um, found that that while neither theory was able to fully explore everything, the beliefs of actors are kind of um, their motivations for partaking in it meant that they worked together to achieve certain goals uh, but then simultaneously that the structure of the state and the structure of the policy-making process means that big, powerful players like the aviation industry are able to dominate the process to get what they want continually. So what kind of things have they... Well, well through your research, what kind of things did you find out? Uh, what, what sort of things have, have the aviation industry uh, had their way with? Well, I think in both, in both of the cases that I found were that... Um, in spite of an increasingly recognised environmental impact, they are able to, in the long term, get what they want. So, for example, in the Stansted case, it began in the 1950s and um, the, the idea that London needed a third airport, even though the decision to approve it at Stansted wasn't made until the mid-1980s. And it took so long because um, more and more people got involved. Small battles took place between local residents, but which stalled the process, and, and simultaneously... The recession happened in it that meant that a big um, infrastructure project was not as um, as attractive to government, so that put a stop on it. 
So even though they had these blockages and there were small battles that they weren't able to win, in the long term, they were able to, to get what they wanted. And then same at Manchester Airport. What they did there was to, to get the second runway built, there was a lot of local resistance, a huge amount of local resistance. And the environmental impact of it was quite great. But Manchester Airport Group, who um, owned the airport there, they were able to um, kind of preempt this and did a lot of work in terms of environmental mitigation to kind of make their case bulletproof when it got to the public inquiry. They had done everything they could to, um, to minimise the environmental um, impact, even though it was quite significant. They were, they were doing everything they could to um, ensure that when challenged on it, they could prove that they'd done as much as they could. And so with, with these kinds of situations, uh, people playing down environmental um, are they playing down the environmental impact or are they playing up, I guess, economic benefits as a, as a trade-off? Or is it a bit of both? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always a case of this trade-off, whether um, the economics outweighs the environmental impact. But as, as you see in so many cases in terms of environmental problems now, that it's very difficult to quantify the environmental impact. I mean, people try to, but compared to saying the aviation industry is going to provide X amount of jobs and provide X amount of economic benefit to the wider Cheshire area or wider Manchester area, then it's very um it's very attractive to, to policymakers. I mean this economic impact is hugely attractive and the aviation industry can support that. And like any big industry, if if you're within that rhetoric of economic growth, you will you will be seen favourably because that's the system that we operate in. How did you go about doing your research? Was it a case of looking at, um, again, I mean, obviously some kind of academic literature, but were you looking at reports and things that have been written over this period as well? Yeah, so um, the Stansted case said there was a lot of, I mean, the case took, as I say, over 30 years with three different public inquiries and a massive um, commission in the 1970s to explore options. So down at the National Archives at Kew and at the Essex Record Office in Chelmsford, there is a wealth of public records that I was able to, to go and use. And there was also a number of um, books that had been written about the case because it, cause it was so massive. People had written books and, and commentaries and, and a lot of newspaper articles on it. So I was able to draw them all together. And again, with the Manchester case study, I went up to the John Rylands Library in Manchester where they held all the inquiry documents. So it was a case of looking through these documents, finding out who was involved, who was working together, and then I interviewed key um, key actors, key stakeholders in in both cases, which obviously was a bit easier for the Manchester one, seeing as the Stansted one began in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I suppose ultimately, what kind of conclusions did you draw? I think. Um, I concluded that it was because of these um, big industry helps out with this rhetoric of economic growth and kind of the wider capitalist system of we need to grow, grow, grow. And any industry that aligns with that kind of narrative will be able to dominate the policy-making process, particularly in cases like the environment where it's um, quite a local problem. I mean, in both these cases, it was definitely local residents that were the main opposition. That has changed now, and I'm sure that if I looked at um, the Heathrow's third runway, climate change and environmental impacts have taken on a national and international face now. So the resistance is different. But in the historical bit that I looked at, it was that the opposition just didn't have enough. 
And yeah. for example, in the, Stans- in the Stansted case, I mean, people have been fighting against the airport there for 30 years. There comes a point where people are financially and emotionally drained. I mean, how much can you can you physically do? Yeah, it sounds like you're quite um, passionate about this this topic. How did you get involved? Uh, how did you end up doing a PhD in this area? I started to get an interest in this idea that industry could basically get what they wanted in spite of anything else, in spite of everybody else, sorry. Um, when I studied geography at Sussex, Sussex University, where I did my degree, and I did a bit of research then into looking at um, the aviation industry and just in terms of climate change agreements. So I think at that time it was when they were completely excluded from the EU emissions trading scheme because it was a bit of a wicked problem and they from, from what my, my understanding was that they couldn't really handle how to get it in there and they had made, managed to put it bluntly to wiggle out of that at that point so I kind of was a bit interested then and then I, I thought well this is something that I want, want to continue to investigate a bit further continue to explore and then um, luckily enough um, I started to think about doing a PhD and I saw this one advertised at, at the University of East Anglia on this similar theme looking at the aviation industry and this idea of privilege so I applied for it and then I ended up um, going off to East Anglia well that's uh, a nice um, I suppose serendipitous yeah. thing yeah yeah, yeah it, was, it was funny how these things work out that you kind of put a feeler out don't you and, and then there's an opportunity yeah I like that um Similar things have happened to me over the last few years where you just think, well, I'd quite like to do that. And then things just come up. Yeah, and, I, and I, I've been toying with the idea of um, of staying in, in academia and um, and looking into going to do a PhD. I think it's to do something a bit more um, in-depth and to to really hone my skills. And then, then as I say, there was this, this um, studentship was advertised and it just kind of, the timing was right and applied for it and then got the position. Great. Yeah. So, so having talked about how you, what you did during your PhD and how you came to do mm-hmm. it, um, can we skip ahead to your Viva? Because yeah. um, I'm, I'm curious, um, well, first of all, what did you do to prepare for it? I did quite a lot of preparation and um, I, I was lucky enough that, lucky, unlucky enough that immediately proceeding my PhD. I didn't have a, a next um, job or a position lined up, so I had the time to um, to dedicate quite a bit of time to preparation. Um, my supervisor had given me a book, um, "How to Survive Your Viva" by Rowena Murray, I think it was. Yeah, that's that's hers. I remember yep. the title. So, yes, yeah, so I read that, and um, I got this article from my supervisor on. Um, I think it was an old times. Um, her education piece just about someone's experience so I, I read the book and I read the article and I kind of gave, gave myself like a, um, a big crib list of potential areas potential questions that I could be asked broad broad areas and for that uh, then I started to draw up some mind maps loads of mind maps about potentially what I could be asked but um keeping it quite non-specific kind of broad thinking um, kind of questions so I, I worked up a lot of those I also was really lucky that during my PhD I sat in on two mock vivas of my supervisors other students so 
I was on the other side, so I was kind of asking the questions. And so that gave me a good understanding of the types of things I would be asked. Then after I submitted my PhD, I had a mock viva with my supervisor on the phone. So I'd done, read all my books and I'd done my mind maps and prepared like that. And then I had this Skype mock viva with my supervisor. And it kind of threw me a bit because even though I felt at that point I was quite prepared, I just kind of, the way that he phrased questions was not what I was expecting. So um, that was good in that it gave me um, a chance to go and reflect on that and um, think about the types of questions. How far in advance of your actual viva was the mock viva that you had? The mock viva on Skype was about three weeks, and then okay. then about four days before my actual viva, I had an actual mock viva in, in person with my supervisor and three other PhD students. Similarly, like what I had done with what I had done previously, I was kind of on the other side, and that was kind of round the table, very kind of um, like a formal setting. Um, they went through the questions, and that was so much better than the first mock driver. Okay. It was, was that a common practice uh, uh, with your supervisor? Because you mentioned sitting in on other mock drivers before. Yeah. So was that something that your supervisor or your department did? That's something that my supervisor um, does, yeah. And he, um, I think it's a great thing. I think it really helps me massively. Um, to my knowledge, it isn't common um, in my department. I mean, for the from my my peers and colleagues that I've spoken to, it isn't hugely common. But I think it really massively helped. Really, really helped. Yeah. yeah, I've not come across that before, actually, but I can I can definitely see the advantage of that. Yeah, and rather than just having a chat about like the types of questions, kind of formalising it a bit, you kind of... Um, I think it's quite fearful when you go into your actual visor and it's all new and you have never been in that kind of environment before. And it kind of gives you a little bit of a taster of that. As yeah. well as preparing for the types of questions and that you're going to be asked. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned uh, creating some mind maps as well. Was that something you'd done a lot during your PhD or, or before that? Or was this something you started, you did for the first time for your viva? No, I actually started with the... Um, I just find it a really useful way to organise my thoughts. And I know everyone has different um, ways of doing that. But I actually um, started doing it when I did my A-levels. I had a business studies tutor at the time. And we were doing exam prep. And he just said, do it, as, try it as mind maps. Like, see if that works for you. And ever since then, for exams, for kind of collecting my thoughts, for everything I do now, I kind of start with a blank page and mind and my map it. And it works for me. I mean, I, I appreciate it. it doesn't work for everybody, but, but it is definitely worth a try. Yeah, yeah. I um, I go back and forth with my map. Sometimes I think, yes, this is what I really want to make for, for projects and things. And other times I just have massive lists. I, I, I can't seem to sell. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just have to go with what works, don't you? Yeah. And if it's a mixture yeah. of the two that works, then, then great. But yeah. I found them really useful. Cool. Um, did you do anything like um, marking up your thesis or annotating it at all? Yep, I massively marked it up. Um, I don't know whether that was for reassurance or for, uh, in my head, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I highlighted, I read for it, I highlighted it, I stuck post-it notes all over it. But actually, I think... Like when, I, when I was talking to friends and colleagues, it's like, read your thesis, read your thesis in preparation for it. But actually, you know the thesis. You've written it. You've just written it. You've just finished it. And I think time is better spent with these kind of broader questions and thinking about those rather than just rereading 
the whole thing again and again and again. So yeah, I did annotate it, and I took it in to my Viva annotated, and with all these post-it notes, I'm not entirely sure I even opened my thesis during my Viva. Wow. Okay, well, maybe this is a good just, point. No, no, go on, go on. I think sometimes if you just have it there for reassurance, it doesn't matter if you feel better with it like that. I mean, I did. I felt much better knowing that it was there and highlighted and annotated, even though I didn't have to refer back to it. Yeah, I think that that's my general sort of philosophy on the marking up and highlighting and so on is that it's there. I mean, it does two things. I think it helps you prepare and also it kind of takes away some, well, hopefully takes away some of the stress, potential stress on the day. I think so. Because, I think so. because you know it. Yeah. You know that it's there. Yeah, yeah you know it's there and I don't know, it's not, maybe just looking down at it and you know it's all highlighted. If, if that's psychologically enough to give you a bit of strength, then, then if it works, go for it. Yeah, yeah. So I think now's a good time to talk about what happened on the day. So how did um, what was the day of your Viva like? Um, well, my Viva was at one o'clock, which is fine, but I'm a very much a morning person. So I felt at that point I was like, <laughs> gosh, and I get up very early, so it was a long wait in the morning because one o'clock is quite a long time when you wake up at six, isn't it? So. Yeah. Um, I guess I had to try and handle that. I know the way that I work, and I'm better in the morning, so I had to kind of overcome that, 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 and kind of think, crikey, I've got to, got to be on form all day. But I was, I think the nerves kick in, don't the adrenaline kicks in, and it's, um, yeah, I was nervous. I would think um, more nervous than I would admit at the time, probably. I think on the day it got to the point where it was a bit of a case of, well, I've done everything I can do now, and I, and I mean, uh, there's no more preparation you can do on the day. Is there? On the, there's no more preparation you did the day before. If you don't know at that point, you kind of, kind of just got to go with it. I think. So yeah, it was yeah. nerve-wracking. It was really nerve-wracking, but I guess it's supposed to be, isn't it? I mean, it's not going to be an easy ride. Uh, no, probably not. <laughs> so how did uh, how did your Viva start then? Well, actually, this is what threw me. I got told when I got in that I'd passed. And while I had heard about that practice, I I didn't think it was going to happen. Like, I didn't think it was that common. So they told me immediately that, um, that I'd passed. And so while that sounds reassuring, then it kind of kicked in, well, passed to what extent? Right. So I think in some ways I might have preferred not to have known until the end. But... Okay, I can't go back. I can't change it. But um, yeah, it did throw me a bit. That did. Okay, and did you have to give any kind of presentation at the start? No, no, no presentation. Um, we just kind of went in and sat down, and then um, I think the opening questions were kind of, um, could you tell us, uh, summarise your thesis, summarise what you found, kind of very, um, are these broad questions to start off with, just to kind of, I guess, relax me and. Um, to start the conversation. Okay. And so what happened after you'd kind of given your overview? Um, we did a lot of... Um, it went on to much more specific questions. Um, it might be a good opportunity to say here that I actually chose my external examiner, um, which was something that at the time I was a bit not uncomfortable with, I guess maybe a bit unsure about, because... Um, after talking to my supervisor, um, it got to the point, obviously, where I had to start thinking about who I was going to have as my external. And 
I don't know. I guess again, when you speak to other colleagues, it's kind of. I just kind of thought it got picked, and obviously a few months before submitting my PhD, it's quite a stressful experience, isn't it? Anyway, so when you get to that point, then trying to think about who you want to examine it, it was quite um, nerve-wracking. But my supervisor persisted that I thought about it and that I chose um, who who I would like to be and come and talk to about my my thesis. Was like his own opportunity to get to chat about it, right? So have someone that you would. Would like to have that conversation with. Yeah. So I um I chose a guy that um, I had met previously. I'd been to workshops and conferences with that I knew I knew I knew pretty well, uh, and he was um, more than happy to do it. So I think immediately when I walked in, knowing and I knew the internal examiner obviously, knowing both of them, my examiners, the stress, I mean, um, the nerves and the stress of that kind of that anxiety of walking in and not knowing them, that, was, that wasn't there. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly scared about that aspect of it because I already knew both of them quite well. With an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary PhD, obviously there's lots of scope to, um, to talk about the environmental aspects of it, the political theory aspects of it, the history aspects of it. So um, my external examiner was, is a political theorist and so it wasn't unsurprising that a lot of the questioning was around the two political theories that I had employed in my research and kind of exploring why I chose those, what they found, why why these ones and not other ones, those kinds of areas of questioning. Did, did you get questions on those other aspects though, that you just mentioned? Yeah, yeah, I did get questions on the other aspects, yeah, but not, the focus was definitely on the um, the political theory aspects of it and, and what, they, the, what, that had, what they had found out about the case, as, okay. as opposed to, so maybe if I'd gone for someone who was involved in planning, for example, the questions may have been quite different. Like, say, a professor of, of rural planning might have been very different questioning, I would imagine, than a political theorist. Was the vibe stressful while, you were, while it was going on? Because you mentioned finding out immediately that you were going to pass, or that they passed you. Yeah. And did that, did that influence, I suppose, how you felt throughout the vibe? Yeah, I guess it must have done. I mean, my vibe wasn't very long at all, either. I mean, how um, how long is not very long? It was just over an hour. Okay. Wow. And then I left for about ten minutes while they discussed it, and then I went back in, and then we chatted about the result and um, future possibilities. So I was for an hour and a half in total, but yeah, the actual vibe was just over an hour to begin with. So yeah, not too long. But I think. Okay. Knowing that I passed, I guess it probably gave me a bit of confidence. But as I say, there was this fear of like, well, what, to what extent have I passed? Mm-hmm. Which would have been useful if they told me that at the beginning as well, I think. But, um, yeah. yeah, so um, so yeah, it wasn't too long. And I, and I think I think because of the preparation that I'd done and when I submitted my thesis, I was very pleased with it. I think I was quite confident going into it that I was I had complete conviction over what I'd written. Like I didn't have, there was no part of it that I thought, oh gosh, oh gosh, um, there's a big hole there, or there's a big gap there, or I'm a bit unsure about that. I think I did go in feeling quite, quite prepared and quite ready for it, even though I was incredibly nervous. But yeah. Yeah. What was the result then when when you went back in? How did you? What did they? <coughs> excuse me. What did they say? They just said um, that, that was they reiterated that I passed, and um, that it was with minor corrections. That would take me okay. a couple of weeks. But, um, Great. But I got given the three months 
through it, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was, at the end of it, it was quite a relief. Um, but I had prepared really well, and I think that that's probably what made the Viva comparison, not easy by any stretch, but it, whilst there was nerves, it wasn't hugely stressful, but I think that is down to the preparation I did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was... Um, about five months ago, is that right? Yep, so the vibe was on December the 13th. So what I was going to ask was, so what have you been doing since then? Because I, I think you've got quite an interesting... Um, well, it sounds... Maybe it's better if I ask this question, so what are you doing now? What am I doing um, now? Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, so yeah, the vibe was in December. I took some time off over Christmas, obviously. Yeah. To... Um, well, for the first time to really relax, I guess. But then again, it never feels like it's ended because then come the end of January, I got the corrections. So then there's doing the corrections, which didn't take me very long. And actually, if I just sat down for five days straight, I probably would have knocked them out. But obviously, like anything like this, when you've got three months to do it, you don't do it straight away. Um, uh-huh. And then, so yeah, and I submitted the corrections and all, all signed off, I guess, February time. So that was all done. I had been looking for um for jobs about like what, what I wanted to do after um for a long time and whilst I'd had some interviews there was nothing I hadn't hadn't got anything and I wasn't struggling in terms of thinking about what I wanted to do but there was nothing that had jumped out and alongside um alongside my PhD I ran a blog, a baking blog, which I know that you've seen, um, and I yeah. really got into it. And um, I thought, well, I quite enjoy this. And I thought, well, maybe this is something, and I'm, and I'm not too bad at it. Maybe this is something that um, would be worth considering doing a bit more than than just a hobby. So anyway, after chatting to my family and um, and all those sorts of things, I thought, well, maybe I'll think about setting up a, a coffee shop, but as a social enterprise. So the idea is that I kind of create a hub um, which sells good coffee and obviously home-baked cakes and food. And I plough the profit, if I have any, hopefully I'll have some, back into community projects and creating, even if it's a small social impact, positive social impact and environmental impact to my local area. So, for example, I'm exploring the idea of offering... um, in partnership with some of the charities down here, a free meal for local families. So I will dedicate X amount of my profits per month into providing free meals for families in need. Um, simultaneously, I'm looking to um, have work experience placements, apprenticeships to help provide people that are struggling to get back to work with some experience to, to bolster their CV, bolster them, their skills. And on the environmental aspect, I'm trying to um, develop a network of local producers, local suppliers to um, to minimise the environmental impact, but also to support local independent retailers in the area. So I'm at the wow. stage now. So the, the, the thoughts came about in March that this would be something that I would quite like to do, um, kind of man- managing to combine my interest in, in, in food with um, kind of the skills and the... the um, the knowledge that I picked up during my PhD, kind of the environmental and social justice, um, creating change, however big or small. And this seems like a, a good way of being able to do it. Yeah. So what sort of 
what point are you up to then? Are you are you actively looking for uh, premises or? Yeah, well, actually, just last week I found premises or potential premises. So I'm at the point where I'm now exploring the financial feasibility of this premises, um, which is not something that I ever thought I'd be doing a year ago, um, writing up my thesis. But actually, it's really exciting, really exciting. Yeah, uh, I feel like I've got a million and one questions I could ask you about it. Um, well, actually, maybe we just, this is, um, I guess, off the, the podcast for a second. Have you heard about, there was a, I'm trying to remember the name, a, a I think it's a bakery called Home Baked in Liverpool. No, Home Baked. Uh, Home Baked. Well, I'll dig up the link and send it to you. Yeah. They, um, basically, there was this bakery near Anfield, you know, the, the football ground. Yeah. And it had been there for years and years and years, family owned. And then finally they decided, well, we just, you know, we're all getting older. We can't really continue it. And so they were going to close. And then a community group has taken it over. Yeah, I think I have heard about this. They did a they did a Kickstarter campaign to raise the money for an oven. Yeah. And um, they got like loads of, they got like an architect to donate some of his time to help some uh, high school kids to think about the space and um so they're hoping to have a couple of flats above the uh, above the bakery which would you know turn over some you know put some money into the the, yeah i mean there is a huge amount of support out there for these kind of things i think they're really needed i mean just to just overcome so many kind of like not like yeah, big social problems. For example, in in Worthing, there's a big issue with social isolation and poverty. And I think there are a lot of people out there that want to help could kind of make a make a change. And so, for example, down here, the the local council have been absolutely fantastic. Um, I've met a number of other people that are starting similar social enterprise kind of projects. There's a guy who's running a um a scheme called Alpatch, which is using ex-council, oh, sorry, council-owned pieces of land to grow fruit and vegetables by bringing them um, volunteers commu- and the community together to kind of retrain in skills, provide them with like a space for everyone to get together. And the idea is hopefully that he will be able to tell his projects to me, for example, oh. using the cafe. And I have a, another, I'm going to say friend, I met her um, at one of, one of these um, business events. And she is hoping to start a bakery to help help provide um, people with mental health problems kind of work experience to give them a bit of confidence to go back out into the workplace. And again, hopefully then we can have a supply chain where the bread would come to me. Hurrah. Yeah. So there's like a lot of there's a lot of people out there like trying to do the to make changes. And I think it yeah. I guess linked to my PhD in a way that it's it's saying that that kind of system, which is built upon this kind of ever, more, ever need for growth, 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 line the back pockets of shareholders, is just not a sustainable way of doing business. And actually, we need to be thinking a bit more holistically about the approach to business yeah. and changing the way that it's done. And I think what's really cool, because I've, I've been involved with a, uh, a social enterprise grad school um, oh, really? this year. I think one of the things that I took from that is that while obviously lots of people set up social enterprises, uh, because of the kind of skills that PhD students build up during their PhD, they're extremely talented for this kind of um, 
enterprise. Yeah, you know, they, they they've got the they've got the skills to make something like this run. Yeah, I think that's that's what I'm finding. Um, so things like networking. I mean, you have to do that throughout the whole of your PhD, and that is coming completely into its own now as I try and talk to suppliers, customers, potential funders, and then things yeah. like um, writing a business plan, writing a research report, doing market research. I mean, these are all skills that I've developed during my PhD. I guess it's, it's, it's the stuff you always get told about your PhD, sorry. <clears throat> Being able to think outside the box and change, innovation and change and all those sorts of things and ideas and applying them in, in the business model. I think social enterprises do offer great scope for um, for that. And also there's a bit of like you get to be your own boss. Yeah. Which as a PhD student I really enjoyed. And like managing your own time and you get to still do that. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's why, I mean, I'm not a social enterprise, but I, there's definitely that aspect that I like about what I do, um, that I can manage my own time. And it's it's challenging. You know, it's it, it's there are so many challenges and problems that come from being your own boss, but there's so many tremendous opportunities as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, can, I completely get that. I, mean, I think that's when I was looking for, for, um, for, for jobs before I decided to go down this street, I just thought, oh, gosh, I don't want to do that I don't want I don't want to be I, don't, I want to answer to myself and I want to push myself to create to create something as opposed to um I guess answering to somebody else that's all really really great to hear <laughs> uh, I, I think we're we're almost out of time but there's um just two questions that I like to ask to round off the podcast if that's yep, okay yep. and the first one is um what advice would you give someone who was starting a PhD the best piece of advice for someone starting is to keep a research diary. I got told this when I was on my master's year at UEA by a PhD student at the time. And he had a, like a notebook that he wrote every day. Not like a diary, like a journal, but like, like um, collected his thoughts there, like a notepad. And every day was a new page and just jotted down all his ideas and thoughts and as and when they arose throughout the day. And so I took that on board. And then throughout my PhD, I must have like five notebooks. And I would go back through them periodically and put them into um, into OneNote to kind of catalogue them like a scrapbook. And I found yeah. that completely invaluable. Great. Um, yeah, I've I've certainly come across ideas. Like I I think I would have benefited from doing that during my PhD, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I do it now. Uh, like when setting up the social enterprise, it's every day. It's just so I guess next to me on the, by the desk, just to jot down bits and pieces. You forget yeah. so many of these little thoughts, don't you? That actually can be really, really important. The the last question for the podcast is: What advice would you give someone who was preparing for their viva? To do mock vivas with um with colleagues and your supervisor yeah. to try and organise those because it helped me so much. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's brilliant. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that with us today, Lauren. Um, it's been really great to hear from you. And um, I'll share your link to a baked thesis. And if anything else, what, whatever else comes up in the future with uh, with your social enterprise, do let us know. And um, yeah, and we'll keep we'll yeah. keep we'll keep sharing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, that'd be great. Yeah, keep in touch. Definitely, that's that's great. And hopefully, um, my experience can um, reassure others when they go into their viral. I'm sure it will. Thanks very much, Lauren. <laughs> Thank you. That's all for episode 19. Many thanks to Lauren for taking part today in sharing her story and to you for listening. If you've got any questions or comments about this podcast or any other, 
then please get in touch either by commenting on the site, by tweeting at Viva Survivors, or by emailing podcast at viva-survivors.com. It'd be great to hear from you, especially if you'd like to take part in a future episode. Until next time, I'm Nathan Ryder, and thanks for listening.